back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my entire catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. Today's podcast features my interview with Kyle G., whose three years of continuous sobriety is relatively brief compared to other guests with double-digit sobriety. But the how-it-was-and-the-what-happened parts of his story are every bit as powerful as those of AA members who have enjoyed decades of sobriety. For many of us, the recency of Kyle's experience is a raw reminder that the disease is as brutal as ever, offering little respite to those who suffer. In Kyle's case, a difficult childhood led into early drug and alcohol use. As alcoholism and addiction surfaced during his later teenage years, Kyle was placed in a rehab as a high school junior, but it had little effect on the burgeoning disease that he resumed immediately thereafter. A hope for recovery in the U.S. Air Force largely failed when Kyle's alcoholic blackout during a deployment caused even more trouble. Once out of the service, he resumed his addictions, though, like many, he was still able to marry and have children and a job, despite his active disease. He even managed to stay dry for five years, but without a program, he was mostly miserable along the way. By the time he got sober, he'd been thoroughly beaten by the disease and ready to take certain steps toward recovery. Three years later, through working the steps with a sponsor, Kyle's sobriety is demonstrated by his sponsorship of other men and his attendance at daily meetings. It's a far cry from where he was when he got to AA, but he's taking nothing for granted, as his disease seems to be residing around every corner. Kyle's is a cautionary tale that's instructive of many of the do's and don'ts that are so prevalent in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think you'll get a lot out of this interview, and I invite you to enjoy listening to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Kyle G. Hi, my name is Kyle, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me this evening. Thanks, Howard. Glad to be here, and thank you for asking me. So you and I have been just at a, one of the great meetings that we attend here. It was a really good topic today. Quit playing God or something along those lines. I've noticed a pattern recently in my behavior of uh, getting getting really worked up about things, then sort of not caring, you know, and everything turning out all right, and me trying to play God and that, you know, I want everybody around me to do it just as I want. But I think, you know, I've been able to shorten the amount of time that I stay in that place, you know. That's what I've found over the years is that... Uh, the, the amount of time in between acting and reacting, it gets adjusted by the fact of what I'm actually doing. So if I do something wrong and need to make amends, the time between the act and making the amends has become much more abbreviated in working the program. Now, how long have you been sober now? Uh, January 1st of 2020, so I'm coming up on uh, three years. Well, you and I will have the opportunity to celebrate on the same day because my AA birthday is January 1st as well. Yeah. Were you actually drinking on the, th the 31st and stopped on the 1st? Well, what did that scene look like? I had been coming to meetings for a little bit before then. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I drank on the 31st. Mm -hmm. On the 1st, I was, I was kind of like, I'm done. And 
my sort of OCD brain, you know, liked the idea of calendar year. And, and so it wasn't like a New Year's resolution mm-hmm. that I just like woke up and was like, all right, I'm going to stop drinking now. Had you ever made resolutions in the past to stop? Yeah, I was sober for almost five years when I was younger, from 21 to 25. But uh, I didn't work a program. And I just white knuckled it, dry drunk for almost five years. Why did you get dry at that point? Why did you stop drinking for five years? I'd gotten in a bunch of trouble in the Air Force. I had gotten an Article 15 non-judicial punishment, lost a stripe related to my drinking. Mm. That didn't stop me from drinking. I, w- I was a I was a bad drunk, and I was you know blackout drinker, get into fights, mm-hmm. do crazy things. And uh, I had gone to Iraq for five months. When I got back, I had two weeks off, but I was you know I was drunk for two weeks straight. And uh, wow. my alcoholism, not PTSD or something like that, you know. Right. And I'd gotten in almost every night of that, you know, a couple of weeks, something bad had happened. I got into a fight. I got a stone out of bar. I got us, you know, I did something to make an ass out of myself, mm-hmm. whatever. And the last night I drank for that period, we were at a bar. I'd done some stupid stuff and, and started a fight. And the guy tried to throw a punch at me. I ducked and he punched my roommate in the face. And he was understandably mad at me. I'll and, bet. <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember just being really drunk. And uh, I remember I called my parents at like three o'clock in the morning, drunk as I could be. Now, where did all this happen? In Grand Forks, North Dakota. Yep. I'm probably, I'm 21, I guess. And I called my parents. My dad's just like, you know, I'm telling them what happened, being belligerent and all this other stuff. And my dad's just like, dude, you're an alcoholic. He's like, you need to go to bed. And when you wake up, you need to go to a meeting and you, you know, you're just an alcoholic. So I did. I went to one AA meeting. I can't for the life of remember why I didn't stay. I don't remember picking up a desire chip. I did get a book. I remember a guy giving me a book and I still have the book that I got. Yeah. I met my now wife a couple weeks after I stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. And so when I stopped that time, it wasn't like, oh, I'm quitting drinking forever. It was like, I'm just taking a little break and a couple weeks turned into a couple months, turned into almost five years, you know, over that time, my life got way better. You know, I got out of the military. Mm-hmm. Me and Kristen were starting our life together. I got into the University of Texas, mm-hmm. you know, like my, my life was getting exponentially better, but I was miserable mm. on the inside, very much a dry drunk. You know, as I was turning into a hermit, you know, it's like, I couldn't go out. If you were drinking, I was like, I, I can't be around it, you know? And so that you really were white knuckling it, weren't you? I was white knuckling it. So, and so dryity, they call it. Returning to one thing that you just said about uh, your, your dad saying you need to go to a meeting. How did he know of going to meetings? So my dad uh, has struggled with drugs and alcohol uh, in his youth and mm-hmm. And, and growing up. And then for me, I spent the second half of my junior year in high school in rehab. So you were exposed to AA all along, huh? Yeah. Oh. I ended up, after, after I started drinking again, after oh. that, you know, five years or whatever, I drank for 10 more years. And it wasn't till the very end, obviously, despite my background and my history of rehab mm-hmm. and going to that one AA meeting and, and mm-hmm. AA was not in my consciousness. Yeah. And it never occurred to me that like, oh, I should go to an AA meeting. And, and even though like things were really bad, it wasn't like I was like, I'm not choosing not going to AA meetings 
or something like that. It just wasn't even something that crossed my mind. So you're talking about a period of time between your... your 25 to 35. Yeah, so from 25 to 35, you drank. But we're talking about a period of you were about 15 when you were in the rehab. Mm-hmm. And you were in it for a considerable length of time. I did 30 days inpatient and 30 days uh, outpatient, 8 to 8, Monday through Friday. What was your exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous when you were in the rehab? We did some step work. Um, we, I don't remember ever going to meetings. Like, we never went to a meeting outside of the treatment facility. Were those, like, facilitated meetings, or were those, like, the traditional AA meeting? No, it was more like group therapy is what yeah. I think, you know, is more what I remember. Mm-hmm. I have a very bad memory from a lot of drug use. And when I was in high school, huffing air freshener was one of my drugs of choice, and I think mm-hmm. that that is killed a lot of my brain. And so I don't rem- I, I remember having some step worksheets and and stuff like that. But nothing nothing like a real indoctrination into AA. Mm-mm. That's that's interesting. I always am concerned and sometimes curious about the process of the handoff between rehab and AA. And of course, rehab has every interest in the world of making sure that you 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 get sober, but then at the end of that time, or when your money is run out, whatever, and you're put out onto the street, figuratively speaking, right. some rehabs do better than others in indoctrinating people into AA so that when that time comes, they leave rehab, they leave uh, you know, sober living, whatever it is, and they engage in AA all along. But it sounds like that wasn't the case where you were. So in high school, I would have considered myself more of a drug addict uh-huh. than, I mean, I certainly drank a ton, but I was more into drugs. And I remember I went to some NA meetings mm-hmm. um, in high school after, after rehab. I don't think that I went to an AA meeting until that first time when I was in the Air Force. I think it was NA, which shaped my view of AA. You know, I had a, you know, like, so I went to NA in Memphis, which, you know, a lot of the meetings were with homeless people with, you yeah. know, you know, it was a very low bottom crowd, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want to go to AA even when I was looking to get sober at 35. Oh yeah. I think I had that almost a like movie, you know, representation in my mind. Uh, you know, it's like, not that I'm better than any of those people, but I was like, I don't have anything in common, you know, common with them, you know? Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things that when I finally did make it to AA, you know, Houston's got a great community. And I was like, man, I want to be half these guys, <laughs> you know. <laughs> NA, of course, is a much newer program. Mm-hmm. And I, where it's good is very good. Where it's not as good, sometimes it can be almost detrimental mm-hmm. because it gives people an attitude about what AA must be like because they've right. experienced a less than uh, engaging NA program. It sounds to me like you started you started using pretty early what was going on in your home life that kind of predicted you becoming an alcoholic years down the road? I've tried to do a lot of family of origin work. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of chaos, yeah. you know, when I was when I was younger. Uh, my parents had me um, when they were pretty young. My mom was twenty. Yeah. My dad was twenty-five, I guess. Yeah. You know, like I said, my dad went from drugs and alcohol and stuff in his youth. To, he went to the Air Force also. I know he spent 30 days in rehab mm. in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. 
Is that before you were born? Or? Yeah, this was all okay. before I was sure. born. Uh-huh. Um, and then did a 180 and went into like ministry, went to Bible college and all this other stuff. Is there a family history of any drug abuse or alcoholism? Drugs and alcohol were are, are part of my family story. Yeah. Um, my my brother's four years younger than me, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I think that things were very difficult between my my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, early. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. there was there was a lot of problems, and my dad had his struggles. Uh, they say my brother um, saved the marriage. And, you know, the way I've, I've thought about that is, you know, they say, I, I hear people, you know, zero to four or five, six, something like that is, is, you know, the most formative years of your, your development and thinking about, you know, what was happening between zero and four for me, you know, and I have to caveat that with like, I have great parents. They love me. They are, they have done and would do anything for me, you know, and, you know, but they've had their own struggles, Sure, you know, it's been interesting as I've gotten more sober and I've done a lot of this work is being able to like, look back at my family Mm -hmm. and know that they're broken people too. And that they have done the best that they could with what they had. You know, I don't think that they had the tools that I've fortunately been given. You know, it's like when they put me in rehab in high school, they didn't have that money. They had to pay cash for it. And, you know, and so it's like they took all their cash and they spent it on my rehab and put everything else on credit cards. Mm. And, you know, and so I've put them in bad situations really my entire life. You know, yeah. Well, obviously, they loved you very much to mm-hmm. to make that kind of sacrifice for you, and so the fact that they did that says a lot about the relationship, but also the power of the disease. And this, to the extent that even though you 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 went into rehab, the results were not what I'm sure they were hoping for at the end. No, it's it's they were actually worse. Um, huh. I you know when I got when I got out, you know, I was getting drug tests and stuff like that. And, uh, I started using cocaine because that's out of your system in three days. Mm-hmm. I always say, unless you do it every day, which is, <laughs> which is, which is what I was doing, you right. know, but they tra- I transferred schools my senior year. Mm-hmm. They knew enough to not send me directly back to the high school that I left. Yeah. Um, I transferred schools and while my drugs got worse, my drug, you know, habits, I've always thought that rehab, it did two things. One, it acknowledged that there was a problem. Like sure. if you have to go to rehab, then yeah. you know, you're know you using more than most people. Uh-huh. And two, I think it put something in the back of my head, in, the, in my heart, whatever, that when it came time to get sober, that it was there. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, we talk about the mustard seed and the fact that a seed was planted somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't uh, cultivated over the years to uh, until a point at which you were ready for it, that's significant. The story of me going to rehab was I had gotten, I did a lot of drugs at school. I, mm-hmm. viewed, I viewed high school, I viewed it as like eight hours where I was not around my family and I could party. Um, 
And, uh, and so I, I did, you know, I'd get high in the morning before going, mm -hmm. I would skip lunch and school, you know, mm -hmm. do more drugs, you know, and just, um, was this with a crowd of people? Like I had a couple minded. people. Yeah. I mean, so I had a best friend growing up that it was me and him just through everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but yeah, there was definitely the kids that we would, somebody had lived across the street from the high school uh -huh. and we would meet over there in the morning and, you know, smoke before, before school started. And, um, we're talking about marijuana now for the most part, mostly marijuana, but I mean, I did a lot of pills. Yeah. I did a lot of, I was always the guy. It's like, if you found something at your parents' house and you didn't know what it was, give it to me, I'll take it and, <laughs> okay. and figure it out for you. We drank a lot, did a lot of drugs. Um, and there was just nothing that I wouldn't try and hmm. nothing I wouldn't do. I had a, a very reckless disregard for life, consequences, anything. And by the grace of God, I have never been arrested. Hmm. I have never gotten a DWI. I've never, for all the things that I have done, I've never been in any real trouble. Hmm. So how did your behavior demonstrate itself to, to such an extent that your parents would say, this kid's got to get some help and how long did it take for them to get to that realization i i bought my first bag of weed in eighth grade mm -hmm. and so and and was an addict immediately and then in high school it turned way up there was problems you know they knew that i was drinking and doing drugs and and all this stuff and then um i had some stuff at school somebody snitched on me mm. and said that hey kyle's got drugs whatever and uh, luckily it was some pills and luckily I would taken them. Uh, I get pulled out of class and I'm high on several, I think it was Valium, but I didn't have anything on me. But the cops, they searched me and everything. And then they went out and searched my truck. And luckily my truck was parked off campus because they found about half a joint in, in my ashtray, underneath my ashtray. Mm -hmm. And um, they take me to the police station. I ended up not really, they called my parents. I don't actually get in trouble. More of a warning type thing. Right. Um, and that night I remember my dad just being like, I'm gonna give you 30 days. And if you can't pass a drug test in 30 days, I don't remember what the threat was. I don't know if you're gonna be kicked out or you know whatever. Mm -hmm. Cause I was seven, 16. Yeah. Yeah, 16. Um, so I don't guess they could have kicked me out at 16, but, yeah. um, anyway, whatever the threat was. Um, and I just told him, I was like, I don't think I'm going to pass a drug test. I like getting high. I like doing drugs. Hmm. That's interesting. Most kids would, would have a tendency to want to try and lie their way out of it or finagle their way. But here you are being pretty much honest with them, huh? I think it was just like, I know that I'm not going to pass this drug test. I, I know that I'm not ready. I know that. So whatever they were threatening. And so I was suspended from school. So, you know, I couldn't go back to school the next day. And I remember my parents came and woke me up the next day. They were like, get up, get dressed. We're going somewhere. I said, okay. And so uh, they kept my brother home from school. And so the four of us go, we go somewhere, yeah. you know, to this, this building. And my parents go meet with somebody. It looks like a doctor's office type situation. And, and we're sitting there and me and my brother, and there's two double doors secured by a key card. And there's like a little window in the door. Yeah. And I could see kids, a line of kids walking in single file line, you know, <laughs> through the window. And I was, I, I turned to my brother, I'm like, 
I think this is rehab. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I, I go up to the front desk lady. I'm like, uh, is this rehab? And she's like, where are your parents? And I was like, they're talking to somebody. She's like, I think you should sit down and wait on your parents. And I, go sit down. I was like, I think this is rehab. And sure enough, it was. And so basically, you know, they told me that after I had that conversation with them of like, I'm, I'm not going to not get high. Right. They're like, we have to do something. Mm. So I guess overnight, you know, or in a very short period of time, they, they found somewhere. And, and so they left me there. Wow. Um, and like I said, I did 30 days inpatient where I lived there. I went to school there. And then I did, you know, 30 days outpatient, eight to eight, Monday through Friday. Um, and that was that was the second half of my, my junior year in high school. What was that experience like for you in rehab? I don't fully remember. Yeah. I mean, I think I remember being like, you know, like, what the hell? I think part of me thought that I was above it. I mean, yeah. most of the people that I was in there were in there for meth. You know, I, I grew up in Tennessee, um, in Memphis and, you know, right there in the corner of Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, you know, and, you know, rural, most, you know, most of the people there were in there for meth. And I was like, I'm not a meth head. I was like, I smoke pot, you know, do some pills, you know, occasionally. So already you're different you're seeing the differences and none of the similarities. Correct. You know, and, and I think that a lot of them were poor. A lot of them, you know, were from bad families, mm -hmm. were from, you know, I mean, there was a kid in there. I remember he said, like, this was his, like, third time to OD at 17 years old, you know, cooking crystal meth, shooting crystal meth. Um, and I don't remember how much I acknowledged that, like, I have a real problem. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, as soon as I got out, I started doing coke and pretty regularly. And, you know, there was, I was working, um, at a restaurant and it was me, my best friend, our general manager, and one of the other managers that we would, you know, pool our resources and buy a bunch of cocaine. And so when you say when you got out, is this after the 30 days or the after 60 After the 30 days, yeah. Because I was getting drug tests while I was in there. So, I mean, I was sober for a little bit. Is that how you were proving to your folks that you weren't using was the drug tests? Yeah, I remember this one time, uh, and this was when I was on Coke, because mm -hmm. I was getting the little home test, you know, so for THC or whatever. Mm -hmm. I remember, like, my uh, my nose started bleeding in front of my dad, and so then my dad's like, you're doing Coke, and I, was, and I just went reverse psychology, like, oh, yeah, Dad, I'm doing Coke. Like, yeah, of course you think that about me, you know, just, <laughs> you know, doing the manipulation yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know. How'd um, it work? It worked. I mean, I shamed. <laughs> I just went so hard at him yeah. that I was that you know that my nose just started bleeding. And of course, I'm not doing drugs. Whether he believed me or just chose to back off that in that instance. So here you are. You're 16 years old at that time. Yeah. 16, yeah. 17. And you get out of rehab, and you know, obviously, your parents are treading pretty lightly because they don't. They want whatever happened to be ongoing value to you, let's right. say. But you get out, and the first thing you do, you get a job. You start using cocaine on a regular basis. Yes. How were you keeping that and your continuing drug use from your parents' purview? I think I did for a while. Then I don't think I probably was. Uh. Um, and so I signed up for the Air Force. And so my parents knew my, that I was using again. And, and their goal was just to get me out of high school 
and into the military. Mm, okay. And and so I graduated at 17. And uh, so I graduated in May of 02. Mm-hmm. I turned 18 in July of 02. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the Air Force in January of 03. I remember like I was failing my Algebra 2 class my senior year. And I, I just remember that my mom was basically calling and begging my Algebra 2 teacher, just give him a D. Yeah. Like, I wasn't going to go to summer school. I, I wanted to drop out. It was my goal. I was like, I just want to drop out. Me and my buddy will get an apartment together and it, life will just be awesome. Right, right. Your mother wasn't buying that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it would have been awesome until the first time rent was due. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, um, and so it was just like, just please. And she, she did. She made me come to tutoring sessions in the morning and stuff like that. But she ended up passing me. And by the grace of God, I graduated high school. But I graduated high school with a 1.4 GPA. Yeah. I mean, so it was very um, just barely getting by. So the goal was for your parents, let's get them out of high school. Let's get them right into the military. Yep. Now, you said your dad was in the military. Yep. So how were they viewing the going into the Air Force and its likely impact on your drug use and uh, your addiction? They, I think it was, they saw it as my only ticket out. I couldn't go to college. Like I said, I graduated high school with a 1.4 GPA. So, I, and I couldn't go to college. And even if, if I would have gone, I would have failed out. They just saw it as my one ticket. I mean, I have friends who are literally homeless now mm. from the, where I was, when I was growing up and that are, and most of my friends, I've smoked crack one time. Yeah. Uh, and it was right before I went in, you know, and, and, and I did it and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, like, I was like, I understood it. And then, and then you couldn't get to it anymore. Right. You know, and so it's, and most of my friends got into crack meth and that sort of thing mm. after I left. And if I would have been there, I would have absolutely been in it. And something that's for me, when I'm done with something, I'm done with it. Mm -hmm. And, and so when I went to the air force, I was just like, okay, I don't do drugs anymore. And I didn't do drugs. Mm. And, and it wasn't, you know, not drank a ton. Like I stopped smoking cigarettes before I went to the air force. And, mm. and it was just kind of like, all right, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. And I didn't, I didn't smoke, you know? Yeah. It's weird that I, I have kind of this on off switch, um, in some ways. Did you find though that your addictions or your usage of the drugs at the time just morphed into alcoholism? Yes, for sure. For sure. So the, especially I think the air force, you know, they've, they've got this and certainly the Navy and a few other branches of the service have reputations for during off hours, you go straight to the, yeah. you go straight to the bar to the, you know, the yeah. And so, well, and that's the other thing. So I was stationed in North Dakota. We're an hour from the Canadian border, two hours from Man uh, from Winnipeg in Manitoba, and uh, you can drink at 18 there. And so that probably made it even worse because I could, we I mean we went to Canada every single weekend, you know, and um, you know, and we would just drink and drink and drink and and like I said, you know. I was a blackout drinker. Mm -hmm. Things were, um, things were bad. Um, but the people around me were also heavy drinkers yeah. and I had some crazy friends. And so there was never, it never felt like too much. I mean, it did, but it didn't, you know, until, 
I ended up getting in trouble when I was in the Air Force for my drinking. We were on, I was on my way to deployment to Kyrgyzstan mm -hmm. and we stopped in uh, Sicily and we had 12 hours on the ground and I was working the jet. I wasn't just mm -hmm. a passenger. Right. Uh, we, we, I think we landed early in the morning and then we were supposed to be ready to go at like 6 p.m. or something like that, you know? And so we we're like, oh, we're just going to go out for a little bit, you know? Yeah. And we go and we find this bar and we just start drinking and, mm. and I get just wasted. I mean, mm -hmm. I drank, I think I drank them out of Budweiser and Jack Daniels. And, uh, and then we're supposed to meet up at the hotel, checked out, ready to go back to the, back to the, uh, back to the base. And I think it was like six o'clock and then we couldn't find a ride. So we end up sh showing up to the, back to the hotel at like eight o'clock or something like that. Very, very late. And the air crew standing there, they're waiting on us, you know, everybody. I stumble in, you know, and I'm completely blacked out at this point. And mm. they take me to my room and they're like, all right, get dressed. We're going to go pack our bags and mm -hmm. go get dressed. And when they come in, I'm passed out on the bed. Mm. Not, you know, and so they have to get me dressed. And then they take my wallet and they put it in my pocket and they're mm. in my cargo pocket, mm -hmm. which is not where I keep my wallet. Mm. And, mm. and so uh, we go to... We go downstairs and I'm trying to check out of the hotel and I'm like, I can't find my wallet and I'm pulling stuff out of my bags and all this mm -hmm. other stuff. The air crew's just standing there watching me. And someone's like, go help him. They come in there, like, dude, we put your, we put your pocket, your wallet in your pocket. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So I check out of the hotel. We, and then we get on the, the shuttle bus to go back to the base and I pass out immediately. And I, and this is where I came to. I, I came to security forces is standing over me you know, the police checking IDs at the gate and they're like, sir, we need your ID. And I'm like, I can't, I can't find it. I'm looking at like, dude, it's in your pocket. <laughs> and uh, so, but, you know, it's like if you get real drunk and then like something happens and you snap out of it, you're yeah. still drunk, but yeah. like, yeah, you I had a moment of clarity. I had a moment of clarity. And so then I'm like, all right, I'm good. I'm good. You know, whatever. But it was too late at that point. Mm. And so um, they end up taking me to, um, we get off the off the bus and they're just my head crew chief is like get on the plane don't touch anything just you know go away and uh but then the captain the the pilot of the plane had gone home and called uh back to grand forks and was like hey we got a drunk crew chief what should we do and they're like oh. send him home and so they come they get me off the plane i take a flight from uh from Sicily to Rota, Spain. And then I take a bus from Rota to Marone. Under different circumstances, it would have been nice. I took a bus across the Spanish countryside. Yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're but, blacked out. <laughs> but I, but I, was, I was terrified. And uh, I just remember when we, when we got, to the, uh, got to the base and I was gonna catch a rotator back home. And I remember there's this uh, master sergeant and he's just like, I never met him before. I didn't know who he was. And he's just like, uh, he's like, they're going to make an example out of you when you get home. Mm. And um, we'd had several alcohol-related incidents. People missed deployment. Uh, people get in trouble. And, and they were kind of like, we're going to you know, put an end to this. So you were the last straw for them, huh? Yep. And, mm. and so we, I remember I called home that night. 
and and I tell my dad, you know, and I tell my parents that you know they're going to hang me out to dry. They're going to make an example out of me and all mm-hmm. this stuff. This is the love that my parents have for me. Is mm-hmm. my dad? He hops in his truck. It's a 20, 21 hour drive from uh, Memphis to to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, he has long hair. He cut off his hair for a short haircut, shaved his goatee, and got in his car and he drove to North Dakota. And because he had experience with the military and stuff like that, and and he got a meeting with our chief or my chief, and he was, you know, and basically was just like, "Look, I'm not saying don't punish him. You know, like he deserves to be punished. He did wrong, uh, but don't make an example out of him." Which meant that they would have thrown the book at you, right? And, and they told me when, when I, and so when I got off the plane, um, the police were there waiting on me and to escort me and they took me to like the chief's office and stuff. And my dad was there and it's funny cause I remember being so mad at my dad, like, why would you do this? You know, but yeah. my dad saved me. And, uh, and you were still drunk at this point? No, no, no. I was sober. Okay, this so was a couple of days later by the time so, I got, right, right, you know. Right. And so I ended up getting in trouble. Like I said, I got an Article 15, which is non-judicial punishment. So mm-hmm. I lost a stripe, restricted a base for 30 days, lost. Um, there were some other punishments, but I, I didn't go to jail. Which is good. Which, which is what I think they want to do to me. They and, didn't throw you out of the service. Either. And they didn't throw me out of the service. You know, and so I've got an honorable discharge. I got my GI Bill. I got, you know, I got everything. All for one evening of getting drunk. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, and, and it was frustrating. You know, it's drinking was a big part of our culture. Yeah. You know, and even, and this is where I, I was, I played the victim. I was like, well, everybody else gets drunk too, you know, and all these other people. I mean, we've had pilots show up drunk, you know, and so it's like, why am I being singled out, you know? And, um, but I was drunk. Mm. I was very, very drunk. And so it ended up being a good thing for me. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So did your dad's intervention, did that mitigate the punishment? It did. And I mean, that's what they told me. They said, yeah. they're like, they're, you know, I remember the chief being like, I've had a lot of parents call. I've never had any of them get in their car and show up. Yeah. And so I think I got the lesser of the, the punishment because my dad went and pleaded my case. And and so like that's, you know, that that's the the conundrum I've had with my family of like, I have a family that would do all this for me. Yeah. But then there's been, you know, a lot of issues growing up and a lot of anger and a lot of, you know, and just this extreme dichotomy of, of who they are and how they show up. So the natural gratitude that you would have for everything that happened 
is largely affected by what happened when you were younger and perhaps other things that went on such that the gratitude almost feels like it doesn't need to be expressed because, you know, well, you owe me this because of the way I got treated or whatever. So, of course, you're going to bail me out. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, especially as I think about my own kids now. And, you know, it's like on one hand, I would not be here if it not have been for my family enabling me. Yeah, true. I would have been in jail. I would have been in, you know, dead. I would have been somewhere. I would have, you know, and, and so, but then also, like, they enabled me to do all these things, you know, and so it's 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 hard to know what the right answer is. Well, and it's tough to know that, you know, when it's a choice of enabling or die, enabling yeah. or prison, Yeah. Most people are willing to enable <laughs> enable with the idea that, okay, we'll deal with this once we, in other words, you can't deal with it once the person's dead or once yeah. the person's in prison. Yeah. Kick the can down the road and hopefully it gets better at some point. Well, yeah. So is that what happened for you? I think so. Um, when I stopped drinking yeah. those, the, the initial five years, I, the Air Force was no longer working for me. Okay. And so I'd originally signed up for six years. Yeah. And I got out a little after four Mm -hmm. and um, I had met Kristen and we were dating, you know, our first year was long distance. She's from Memphis. Uh And once I was sober, but like I said, I wasn't working a program or anything else like that is all the partying and stuff like that. And just not being able to do it was too much for me. Mm. I mean, I tell you, I was the worst DD ever. It's like I'd get people to the bar and then like 30 minutes later, be like, I got to go. I'm like, dude, you got to get us home. I'm like, figure it out. I'm mm. leaving. You know, and this <laughs> you had was a real this, attitude about yeah, it. Yeah, huh? and this was like pre Uber and everything else like that. And I was just like, I, I can't be here. Uh huh. And so I was just so uncomfortable in my own skin, and knowing that I didn't want to drink, that I shouldn't drink, but not knowing how to do it. And so anyway, I was in from 03 to 07, mm-hmm. height of the Iraqi War and everything. And they cut 40,000 Air Force slots to beef up Army and Marines. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I wanted to get out. Mm -hmm. And um, they had said, no, you can't get out. You're good at what you do. You know, we've lost a lot of people. And so I find this regulation or whatever that there's, you can apply for a miscellaneous separation. Basically, just say, I want to get out. Um, so I write a letter talking about I want to get married, I want to go to college, you know, and all this other stuff. And I'm literally in my desert uniforms on my way to Qatar. And I, I before I leave, I drop this this packet off at personnel. And I'd had to route it through like all my all my supervisors. There's no, 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 just all these no's. You know, nobody approved it. And so, but I go submit it anyway. I get on the plane and I go to Qatar. I'm over in Qatar for about 30 days and, and, um, I see my roommate. He's like, dude, you're getting out. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, he's like, yeah, he's like somebody had, had said that they wanted to get out too. And so I sprint to the nearest computer and, uh, and at the top of my inbox is my discharge paperwork from the air force. And so they had to like put me on a rotator back home and, and I was out within we like a week or two at most when I got out and it was what I needed at the time, mm-hmm. you know? And so when I got out, I, you know, moved back home, Chris and I were getting more serious and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I, like I said, I'm sober. And so my head is clearing, mm-hmm. you know? And so then I started thinking about like, Oh, well, what can I do? 
And, and it's just funny the way I can draw a straight line mm-hmm. almost through all the things that have happened in my life and say that, that this, this led to this, led to this, is I apply at the University of Memphis and I don't get in. And I go up there and I'm like, hey, like I didn't get in. And they're like, have you seen your GPA? You know, like that, <laughs> yeah. that 1.4 that I yeah, talked about. Yeah. And so I go to community college uh-huh. and I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, like I'll just transfer in, you know, to the University of Memphis. Well, I go to community college and I do great. I uh-huh. mean, I get straight A's, you know, and, and then, like I said, I'm starting to think like, well, what else can I do? Yeah. You know, and I thought I wanted to do finance. And so I go... I'm looking at Barnes and Noble, um, and I'm looking at top ten schools by major. Uh-huh. And University of Texas is the only one on there that's not like Ivy League or right, right. Michigan up uh-huh. north or something. Sure. And, and so I go home and I apply, and luckily I got in. That's amazing. And what's funny is I didn't have to send my high school transcripts till after I was accepted. <laughs> And so me and my wife got, we got married. This is 2009. Yeah. We got married in uh, March. Uh-huh. We came down to Austin over the 4th of July. We n- never been there before. We rent an apartment. Uh, my wife had just graduated ultrasound school and, but she didn't have a job. I was working at FedEx at the time and uh, I transferred to the Austin hub, but I was working, I was making $12 an hour working 20 hours a week, you know, and ended up being the best thing that ever happened to us. How did you view those coincidences? You know, that straight line that you were talking about drawing through all these series of events that happened for you. At the time, how did you acknowledge them? I don't think that I had the the, the consciousness that I have now. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, I know I didn't. I don't think in the moment that I was like, oh man, glad I got that 1.4 in, in, in high schools because mm-hmm. now I'm going to the University of Texas. You know, I think it was just like, I'm just doing things and, you know, I'm an extreme person as many of us, you know, are. And it was just like, I mean, that's crazy. Like, I was like, I'm going to get into the University of Texas, you know? And it's funny, like, I didn't even realize what a big deal it was until I got there. People were like, you're an out-of-state transfer? I was like, yeah, I guess. We, you know, and when we went to Austin, we, we signed a year lease. I was like, we can do a year standing on our heads. I have always had a probably unhealthy risk tolerance you know, from the time when I was doing drugs and everything else, that it's just like, yeah, it's like, yeah, we're just going to move to Austin with no jobs, no real savings, no nothing, and we'll figure it out. Yeah, which these days, wouldn't you say, now that you're sober, you might say, well, I'm just going li- to leave this in God's hands, and I will, you know, mm-hmm. somehow we will get by, right? because I'm, I'm certain that God's got me covered on this. Yeah. Whereas at the time, what you're talking about is something like, you don't care enough about it mm-hmm. to really let it bug you. And if it right. happens, it happens. Right. I'm pretty good no matter where I'm at, you know, and like I can survive on most things I can get by, you know, and I think that it was more just that I, I want to do things. And, and I had this grandiosity, you know. So all of this was happening during this five-year period. How far into going to school in Austin did you did you slip? I, it wasn't even a slip. It was a conscious decision. Okay. And so um, I, my sophomore year, I had gotten a uh, internship mm-hmm. and in Houston, and it was going to be a like a salesy type role. There was going to be client dinners and mm-hmm. uh, those sort of things. And 
because of the way I felt, you know, it's like, I was like, I don't think I can like do this and not drink, you know? So I told Kristen, I said, well, you know, I was like, it's been almost five years. I was so young when I quit. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to try drinking again. And so we had discussions and all this. And so I did, I tried drinking. It's funny. Like I still have today on my fridge, the beer cap of the first beer I drank. It was Budweiser. And in the moment, I was like, well, if this all goes to hell, we can point it back to here. And I took the beer cap and I put it on the fridge. So this was 2009? 2010. 2010, you started, you started drinking again after five years of being dry. Yep. When I started drinking again, like previously, it was all blacked out all the time. Right. This time, there was just enough good times that I could justify it. I get it. Yeah. To where like, you know, like, Hey, let's have a glass of wine with dinner and Mm -hmm. I don't black out. I don't do anything. Everything's fine. You know, but when things went bad, they went really bad. The, the blackouts, the anger, the, you know, and, and most of it was directed at my wife, you know, and usually stem from her being like, are you sure you need three drinks? You know, how long did it take you to get to that point? from the time you started drinking again? The first incident happened very quickly. So is it safe to say you picked up where you left off? No. Hmm. There were, there, I mean, I had a lot of fun. There were some decent times, you know? And, and you know, she was drinking, I was drinking, we were partying, we were going out, you know? So the five um, years wasn't for nothing? No. Right. right. No, and, uh-huh. and some of the behaviors that I exhibited when I was younger, I didn't do anymore, mm-hmm. you know, just some of the real crazy stuff, you know, um, well, cause you're a married man by that point. Right. I'm a little older, a little wiser. Did you have married, kids by that point? No kids. No kids. And so, yeah, we went almost six or seven years before we had kids of being married. So we got married at 24 and I think, uh, our first was born. Yeah. When I was 31. So all this is happening this, this six years from the time you get married, you and your wife are, you're having your little tiffs and whatever else, and some of it could be as a result of the drinking or whatever else, but you still were essentially drinking without major consequences or the- No consequences. A lot of bad action, Yeah. but no real consequences. Now, during that time, did you ever, did you ever come to the point where you said, you know, I think I ought to stop again? I don't really think so. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier about the consciousness of not having of AA or other things. I don't think I ever tried quitting drinking really too much during that, that time. Mm-hmm. Um, now at the end, I swapped, I started smoking a lot of weed and stuff like that to curb my drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never blacked out on weed. I've never done, you know. Um, but, you know, so it was, it was just like, yeah, I was, just, I just partied a lot. You know, and that's that, that's how I viewed it is like I like to party every once in a while. It gets out of out of whack. And but what I didn't realize and I lived under such delusion. Yeah. Is that like my marriage was falling apart. But, you know, she was building resentments against me, you know, very warranted. And, and for me, like I would just be like, 
you know, I'd wake up the next day, oh, oh, like the nights where I would like freak out at her, yell at her, you know, whatever. I'd just like, oh, I'm really sorry. Sorry. Because you black out those yeah, nights? Yeah. Okay, I yeah. blacked out. I didn't remember. I wake up the next morning. I'm like, hey, babe, how's it going? She's like, oh, no. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, it's, it's, it's hard to have a sane discussion with someone when you blacked out. You don't remember it, but they know, do. <laughs> she's traumatized. And I'm just like, hey, babe, how's it going? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that hurts even more. It does, because yeah. and that's why she would get so frustrated. Just yeah. like I'm sitting over here, like freaked out and angry and sad yeah. and mad and and all this other stuff, and you're just like living in la la land that everything's fine. What period of time was there between that and your entree into AA? When did things start to unravel? We had been talking about marriage. She had been trying to, hey, maybe we should go talk to somebody or whatever, and it just never seemed important to me. And then kind of at the end of 2018, we got into an argument. Mm -hmm. She's talking about stuff that's five years old, seven years old, stuff like this. I literally laughed at her. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, that's, you know, a decade ago. And she's obviously been sitting on it for all this time. And she finally is just like, you know, I just don't think I love you anymore. Mm. And I was like, uh... You know, and I, and this is the delusion I was talking about earlier. It's like, I remember thinking like, man, I feel bad for people in bad marriages. Like that must suck. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm, mine's awesome and yeah. my life is awesome, you know, but I was that tornado sucking up everything around me and just everything was done on my will and what I wanted. And, you know, and it's like, you know, I think about it, it's like, sometimes it's like I moved out of my mom's house and. And with her, it's like, all right, now you get to take care of me, oh, you know, yeah, and, I get it. and I so, get it. and so kind of after that fight, then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? We should go see somebody. Yeah. Marriage counseling. We should do that. And so we start marriage counseling and things are pretty bad, you know, was drinking coming up a lot in those marriage counseling sessions. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And to layer over all this is I quit my job. I was in the corporate world. Right. And I quit my job uh, to start a business. And so I went from making good money to making no money. When I think about, so I've been sober almost three years, but when I think about the last six or seven years, if you look at all the things that have happened, it's like, I quit my job, mm -hmm. started a business, you know, or was part of a, another business mm -hmm. and that didn't work out. Started a new business. We had two kids that are 16 months apart. Mm. Um, trying to get sober, getting sober. And it's funny that this barely even makes, you know, a blip on the radar, but like in 2019, Kristen got super sick, um, was in the hospital for 10 days off work for a month, ended up being, having her gallbladder taken out, but it was very scary. We'd had two small kids. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all these things, it's just like, we've had so much, um, happen, but so 2019 was the worst year of my life, hands down. We're doing marriage counseling and it starts to get a little bit better. And then we go to Mexico in May of 2019 for our 10-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we're there, we're drinking and I get really drunk and I'm like, we should get some cocaine. Mm. And my wife has never done any drugs. She's never done anything like that. And the thought that she was just like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. You know, not to mention that I didn't know where to get it other than just sure. walk around and be like, do you have cocaine? <laughs> do you have cocaine? You know, like, yeah. what are you talking about? You know, and we had kids at this point. We had, you know, wow. and then I double down and I'm like, 
because I'd done it a couple times. Yeah. I was like, well, I've done it like twice and like, you know, not a big deal. And then I tripled down. I'm like, well, you were there and you didn't even know. And so just all hell breaks loose. And uh, we're at <laughs> this resort. I remember going to dinner, just being so drunk and so mad. So you never and did the cocaine? No. Uh-huh. That trip, man. Uh, so then we come back home and things really fall apart from there. And, and so I'm trying to get better. I start curbing my drinking. I start smoking a ton of weed. Yeah. Cause you're you trying know, to do that. You know, your trying own. to do that, you know, and I'm like, all right, I cut out Jack Daniels. I uh-huh. cut out beer for the most part. I was like, all right, if I just drink Tito's and soda and wine, you know, then I'll, you know, or I'll be all right, you know? So anyway, so this whole time I'm like trying to get better. She wants to like separate and she wants to do all this other stuff. And I'm just like, nope, I can't do that. Like if, if we're getting separated, we're getting divorced. And, you know, she hangs on and, and, and I, I, I kind of just like, all right, like, look, I was like, I'll spend the rest of my life being the man that you want me to be and all these things. But I was like, I have to know that you're in this, you know, and, and finally, I just can't get her to commit. And then, and through this whole time, I haven't told anybody anything. I'm, this is all internal. Mm-hmm. And like, I was losing my mind. And you had stopped going to counseling by this point. We were, no, we were still doing marriage counseling. I hadn't started individual therapy yet. And, and then finally I like called my parents and I'm like, I don't want them. The first time they hear about this is for me to be like, Hey, I'm getting divorced. And this was in kind of like October, November of 2019. Yeah. And my mom and we were supposed to go to Kristen's family for Thanksgiving. And once I told my parents, it all became real for me. Mm. And I was in my, my hurt and my sadness and everything turned to anger. Mm. And, I, you know, and my mom was like, you know what, why don't you just come home for Thanksgiving? Let her take the girls to the parents, mm. her parents and uh, her mom's house and whatever. And, and just come home. Y'all take a little break. Mm-hmm. So I tell Kristen, I'm like, I'm not going to Thanksgiving. And she's like, what? You, you can't do that. And I was like, no, I was like, you want to be a single mom, be a single mom, mm-hmm. take those kids to the airport at 5 a.m. You know, like go tell your family why I'm not there, you know, just lashing out at her. Yeah. We sold our house and, and that kind of was like, I think a little wake up call for her a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is only about a little over a month before you get sober. Yep. There's a lot going on in this six week period. Huh? Yes. And so basically um, we had decided to sell our house and we found out that we were sitting on a pretty good amount of money. We had a house in the Heights and, you know, we were negotiating. I was like, you know, I'll give you two thirds. You give me a third. Uh, but you got to sign away all the rights to my business and, and so all you guys stuff. were already in the process of we were detangling ourselves from each think, other thinking of divorce at this yes. point i get it and uh and so finally our marriage counselor was like i think y'all need to start doing individual counseling uh-huh. you know like this is probably not gonna go the way you think it's going to um and i remember i had this first in my first individual counseling session mm-hmm. in november like middle of november and um, my hurt and sadness had turned to anger. And I just go in there and I just unload for an hour. I bet yeah. I said 98% of the words. And, you mm-hmm. know, the therapist was like, yeah. I think you should come back next week. Don't do anything, <laughs> you know. And so after that, I come home. Kristen's like, all right, you know, do you, um, she's like, do you want to talk about therapy? You don't want to talk about it? And so I was like, okay. So we go sit on the couch and, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, you know, I was like, Again, I was like, I'll be the man you need me to be, but I just need you to know that you're in this with me and, and all this. And, and she finally goes, okay, the family's the most important thing. 
and this is my spiritual experience. Yeah. We just start hugging and she's crying and I can feel the negative energy leaving both our bodies. Mm. I mean, it's tangible. Mm-hmm. And in the moment I said that, you know, it's like we went from assured divorce to happy than we've ever been in 10, in 10 minutes. And we did. Wow. And in that moment, it was just like it was gone. It was like it was awesome. You know, and it wasn't sexual. It wasn't anything. It was just it was just this powerful moment. And, you know, we I remember like we went and got the girls from school. We went out to dinner. I think I was sleeping out on the couch at the time. Like that night I slept in the bed and it was just like all this, you know, this sort of like euphoric, you know, feeling. Was knowing that you would need to stop drinking and smoking grass part of that experience? I don't think so, because I hadn't agreed to that. Hmm. That's interesting. It was, I think for me, it was her just saying, okay, like, let's figure this out, you know? Her recommitting to the the relationship. And and so you had a starting point. Right. Now, when that euphoric high wore off, there was a whole lot of problems. So what ultimately led me to AA is... About two weeks after this spiritual experience, this miracle, uh-huh. is we were we had a uh, Christmas party for uh, this networking group that I used to be in, uh-huh. and so these are colleagues, you know, at best, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I'm just drinking wine, I'm good, mm-hmm. and so we go to this Christmas party, and I start drinking wine. Next thing you know, I'm five glasses of ed- ahead of everybody. Mm. I black out. I try to fight a guy. I'm rummaging through the white elephant gifts, looking for more alcohol. I just, I make a real ass out of myself. Sure. And this is the first time that I've ever done this in a professional setting like this with uh-huh. people that aren't my friends that, you know, like, not that they weren't my friends, but like, you know, they weren't my boys, you know, where it's like, where Kyle can just be crazy. And luckily none of my anger was directed at her. And I just remember that, uh, the next morning I wake up my kids you know daddy play with me and i'm like daddy's sick you know and kristen's just like dude you got a problem Mm. i had such shame and embarrassment and that 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 was kind of my moment as to how i got into aa so i have a marketing company and i needed a photographer for a job and this is again that straight line that i can Mm -hmm. i ask a person i'm like hey do you know any photographers she gives me three names i pick one of them um, because I like the name of his company uh-huh. and we rode out to the job together. He says he doesn't drink and all this other stuff. Huh. And, uh, I'm just like, okay, cool. You know, and right. it's like part of me is cause now in my, my business, it's like a lot of my work is done at bars, happy hours, networking yeah. events, you know, things with lots of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I was looking back on my previous experience from when the five years when I was sober mm-hmm. and just being miserable. And so I'm just like, you know, how do you run a business and not drink? And so anyway, after this Christmas party, I text this guy and I'm just like, Hey, you know, I remember you said you didn't drink. How do you run a business and not drink? And he's like, be at the AA club at six 30 tomorrow morning. Oh, wow. And so I get up and the next morning I go to AA and that's where, like I said, I had this, you know, my view of AA in my mind was, you know, mm-hmm. homeless people in the bottom of a dirty church, you know, <laughs> and then to walk into this club, which is nice. And these yeah. are successful, you know, people, not that that matters, but you get what, you know, and just like, man, this is, this is it. And so, so I stopped drinking, but I'm still smoking a ton of weed and I'm really grappling with the idea of like, you mean sobriety, like forever. Right. So that's in December 
And then um, we went home to Memphis the um, week in between Christmas and New Year's. Uh-huh. And I drank a couple times. Me and Kristen went out uh-huh. one night. Uh, I drank with my brother. I drank, you know. And at that point, you didn't see it as slipping? No, it was almost like a goodbye. It, it, it was a conscious decision to, to, to drink. Had you gotten a sponsor to, by that time? Nope. I was just kind of going to meetings, but still smoking weed. and Auditing it, so to speak. Right. Okay. And just like, well, I, I can't drink right now. Then we came back from Memphis on New Year's Day, and it's like I left all my weed at home, you know, at my parents' house. I left the drinks and everything. And it's like my obsession was lifted on the drive from Memphis to Houston. New Year's Day. The next day, I, I went in. Second day, opened the meeting, raised my hand, and it was kind of like I'm here, and I'm ready, and and I was. And since that day, I've never struggled with um, the desire to drink or do drugs. Uh-huh. I, what I've realized is like I'm a crazy person, and my emotional sobriety has been a disaster. It's hard to deal with that until you've dealt with your overall sobriety. And then mm-hmm. once you deal with that, then you have the space to deal with the emotional and psychological and other issues that, that yeah. come up. So how long was it before you got yourself a sponsor and what was his approach with you? I got my first, I got my first sponsor. Um, it was pretty early. Yeah. I was so desperate because like my marriage was still falling apart. Right. Things were like, it wasn't like I got sober and Kristen was like, oh, I love you again. And, and I'm ready to, you know, is she was still very angry, still very hurt, mm-hmm. very checked out of the marriage. And so I was just so desperate. And so whatever they, I mean, whatever they told me to do, I was doing it. So I get a sponsor. He was very tough with me, like not tough in like the beat me over the head with a big book type tough, but just like he would only listen to my babbling for so long, you know, and my, <laughs> yeah. honestly, this is where my life, this was one of the most impactful moments in my sobriety and in my, what kind of turned around my marriage mm-hmm. and everything. I remember we were at breakfast one morning and I'm crying and I'm going on about, you know, Kristen and, mm-hmm. um, what she did and she doesn't want to stay married and this and that, whatever. And, and he find, he looks at me, he's like, dude, shut up. He's like, you're exhausting. He's like, look, man, if you get divorced, the next two years are going to suck. Uh-huh. He's like, but in two years, you'll have joint custody of your kids. You know, you got your business. You'll probably be dating again. You're going to live. And it was like, a, huh, I will, won't I? Mm-hmm. And I even asked him, I was like, what? I was like, so your wife walks in the door and says she's leaving you. And you're just like, cool, Godspeed. See you later. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, no. He's like, I'd be devastated. He's like, but if it gets point, she walks in the door and tells me she's leaving me. No amount of crying begging, pleading, anything else is going to make her stay. And if she does stay, she's just going to have one foot out the door. And it was just like this, this total shift in my view of my life, my marriage, everything else is I actually went home and canceled marriage counseling Mm. from that meeting and was like, you need to figure out what you're going to do. I'm just going to be over here being awesome. That's it was very ego driven. I was like, I'm going to be so awesome. It's going to be awkward for you that you don't love me. Oh, boy. You know, and yeah. I'm not saying that was a healthy approach, sure. but, it, but it's uh, it's it's what I did. And but by taking the pressure off her to figure out what she wanted to do, created space for her to do what she needed to do. Yeah. It was real. It was due to a hole in her heart mm-hmm. that I had caused for being a bad husband for so long. Mm-hmm. And that I had to take that responsibility 
and give her the space while I stayed sober. Yeah. And that would probably be a big part of her ability to get through that. Yeah. Is that knowing that you're staying sober. Coming up on three years of sobriety now is I would say just in the last six months Mm -hmm. that things have been good, Mm. like really good and Mm. not just relatively good, but like relative to what it was before, but like actually good. And she's done a ton of work on herself. And that's, that's one of the biggest things that I got out of this was that I had to do my work regardless of what she was going to do. And I think that this is where, you know, I, I, my codependency, my, you know, my family upbringing, Mm -hmm. you know, like nobody in my family's divorced, right? You know, things have not been great, you know, but is just people don't get divorced, you know? And so, I mean, I remember thinking like at one time, like, I don't care how miserable we are, we're going to stay married, you know? And, and then I even came to a point where it's like, well, ultimately if, if you need to move on, like, I understand, you know, and was able to like kind of give that peace. And obviously I didn't want to, we had kids in the mix. We had, you know, and I think for me, like as far as my bottom, when I was like, I'm literally about to lose my family and I just couldn't imagine my kids not being a part of their lives on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, nope, can't do it. Being able to just do all this work. I mean, I've done a lot of work. Sounds like an awakening. It was. When did you make that transition from it being about your ego to it being about a power greater than yourself? I would say in the last year or so. Uh I mean, so my dad is a preacher. Uh Uh-huh. And I grew up with him in, you know, in the church and, and have had a ton of resentments against organized religion mm-hmm. and the people. Yeah. I could never get to God through the people. I'd be like, you know, I, I remember like growing up, it's like, oh, well, you can't do that. You're the preacher's kid, you know, whatever. And, and so I could not even hear God. I could not talk about it. I couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. honestly, like when I had that spiritual experience, my burning bush moment, the the thing that happened with me and Kristen, it's like all my questions just didn't matter anymore. Mm. And I really started to soften on that. And and coming into AA, where it's not religious, it's spiritual, and God of your understanding, and, and what do you, you know, however you interpret that, and being able to come at it from that way, mm-hmm. and it's not just a list of rules, do this, don't do this, blah, 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 you know, it's um, just my heart started to soften. And, and I finally just was like, it doesn't matter how you act, if you profess to be a Christian or how you do, or, you know, whatever, like that's irrelevant. And this is probably where the consciousness of that straight line started to come in. Yeah. You know, of just like, man, the fact that I've never been to jail, the fact that if I hadn't almost failed high school, I probably wouldn't have got into UT because if I would have just gone to Memphis, there would have been no reason to to do that. If I hadn't, you know, just like all these different things, you know, you know, from three given and the guys in AA, you know, just like all these things, it's, it's very up and down, but it's very linear. Yeah. You get to see the difference. You, you firsthand, you get to experience the difference between coincidences and mm-hmm. how God is actually working in your life. And to me, I needed to see that before I could really feel yeah. like I was spiritually connected. Do you feel spiritually connected these days? Yeah, very much so. Like Chris, Kristen has always been like a Christian and, you know, grown up in the church. And, you know, that was always one of our biggest points of contention 
Um, and you know, and I would just be like, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to, you know, because there was a, I struggle with, um, not being authentic, you know, and it's like, well, I don't feel it. So therefore I'm not just going to pray, you know, so it makes you feel good or I'm not going to talk about God, you know, whatever. But now it's like, I'll say prayers with my kids. I'll, you know, we go to church almost every Sunday and, and it's, and it's become, it, it's really spiritual. It's, it's not, a, it's, it's not the religious aspect of it. It's not the, but it's just, I believe in God. I don't always know what that is, you know, but I believe there's something there, someone there. So how has that manifested itself in terms of service work and what you've done to make sure that you stay in the center of the program? Um, I actually did slip out of the center. I didn't relapse or anything, but I went from like meetings seven days a week to probably a six to nine month period with almost no meetings. I think that I had thought that like I had, I had people around me in AA, but, and I think I was trying to put that in place of meetings and almost just thinking like, maybe I don't need it or I, I am good. I've, but then I looked up one day and realized that like, again, like, oh no, this is not good for me. And, um, uh, just seeing that I like, things weren't going very well. And, and I don't necessarily think I was any closer to drinking other than I guess you're always closer to drinking, you know, but I was never, um, I never wanted to drink in that time, but my, I realized that my mental and emotional sobriety was getting very out of whack. And so I decided to do 90 and 90 again. And so I'm about a week away cool. from night, you know, finishing that. And, and so that's where starting to come to all these different meetings. And I'd only gone to one meeting in the morning and then my kids started being in school. So that meeting didn't work for me anymore. And so that was part of it also. And, and I, I hadn't branched out. So now in this next iteration of my sobriety, I go to meetings all over the place at various times. Yeah. And, and I pray to God that I never, I never feel like I don't need it anymore. And, and I've really enjoyed being back in the herd at the center, but it has been weird because, you know, with having the three years, but not having the same level of camaraderie and people knowing me and me knowing them at the same level I did when I was going to meetings seven days a week at the same meeting, you know, a lot of times people like, Oh, like how much time you got? And I'm like, Oh, three years. And they're like, almost like expecting me to say three months, you know, because they've never seen me before. And so getting back into it has been, it's been, in a lot of ways, I felt like a newcomer again. Well, it's a lot about accountability too. In other words, even though, and I find this all the time where people say, I don't go to as many meetings as I used to, but I talk to a a sober alcoholic uh, at least twice a day and I still call my sponsor and I still read and I still pray, but nothing, absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. takes the place of a meeting because a meeting is a commitment to physically take your body to a place where you are Mm -hmm. in Alcoholics Anonymous and to a place where you will not be able to order a drink. That kind of accountability, but to wait for other people to hold you accountable when you're not holding yourself accountable is an illusion because most people are glad to still hear from you. Are you going to meetings, Kyle? No. Well, Mm -hmm. okay, I hope you get back to meetings, but sooner or later, what you're talking about will occur. So my wish and hope for you is that you continue at the end of the 90 days to go for another 90 days, come up with some other commitments 
Uh, I know that you've started to mm -hmm. do some service work in another uh, meeting that we go to. You're kind of the uh, AV guy for our hybrid meetings, which is very cool. Have you sponsored anybody yet? I've sponsored one guy who's gone through the through the steps all the way and is doing awesome. I'm just getting started with mm -hmm. another. You know, the, the end of the 90 and 90 is not like I'm going back to, to no meetings. Or, and it's been awesome finding a bunch no. of new meetings that, you know, and basically like what my goal was with the 9090 is like, you know, it's like you hear, like, oh, that's a good meeting. Oh, that's a good meeting is going and checking out those meetings. Well, that's how I did it early on. And because I was in charge of my own schedule, I could go to noon meetings, especially. And the good thing about noon meetings are that they're transparent mm -hmm. to what's going on at home. So it's, I'm not taking myself away from my wife and children if I'm going right. in the middle of my business day. And the cool thing about noon meetings is no matter how bad my mornings are or how bad my afternoons might be, I have a, a place of solace and comfort and security and commitment mm -hmm. during the lunch hour. So I've done several podcasts so far where there have been people who had the same experience as you. And some of them have considerable years and years of sobriety where for periods of years they didn't go, but they stayed sober and they stayed connected with some of the people. It's, it gave the illusion of them still being committed. Sounds to me like you had that illusion and somewhere along that way, that illusion got smashed to the reality that you have to be there. Yeah, and that's been one of the great things about coming to the, the, the Thursday meeting. You know, I bet the average sobriety's gotta be 15, 20 years, you know? But look at how many guys in the room today had less than 30 days. In other words, whenever they say, uh, is anybody brand new? And if there is somebody who is their first meeting, then they turn the focus to that guy and on the first step. My feeling always is, I'd rather know how many people are under 30 right. days. Because whatever is said for that new guy when there's a brand new guy in the room, most of it still applies to the people with less than 30 sure. days. Whatever is being said to try and encourage that person with one day to come back still applies to guys who have 14 or 23 days or whatever else. So, For me, the person with 30 years, 40 years, whatever, mm -hmm. still needs to come to regular meetings than me with less than three that I do too. I think one of the biggest things that I've had, like my biggest growth, loving myself. And that has been, you know, so critical of myself and so negative And so um, the, just, I have a different standard for me than I have for you or anybody else. And that's not unusual for us alcoholics to, to be able to um, accept myself for where I'm at and, you know, the things that I've done and, and that just like knowing that God has got me all these things that, it's a miracle, you know, that we, we've survived, that our marriage, my marriage is stronger than it's ever been. My relation, I, I've seen my kids change, you know, they're still young, five and six. They've really changed, you know, and, and, and I don't yell uh -huh. as much and, and we're able to have conversations and talk about their feelings. And Yeah, that's the growth that comes from ongoing sobriety and, and staying in the middle of the program. I've really enjoyed the interview. This interview has been really important for me because it's, it's more raw-edged than a lot of interviews I do with a guy who is right in the midst of all these things coming to fruition in his life. And that's very cool. And my commitment to you is to make sure that whenever I see you, I acknowledge that mm -hmm. commitment and that you're a good man, you're a good husband, you're a good father, you're a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love you. Appreciate and love and all too. of those things, those things mean a lot. So. And that's a good thing. Okay. So I want to thank you again for doing thank this. You. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that.
Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Kyle G., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts if you have the time. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.